So we've been here a week together. I have to say it feels like a year. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> congratulations, you're all still here. <laughs> it's amazing because in our everyday life, a week goes so quickly, but um, the time gets bent out of shape on these retreats. Um, and, you know, all we've been doing is sitting around. <laughs> not a lot to, not, not a lot happening. But, you know, there's been so much happening in so many territories uh, that you have all, and we have all traveled through. And so many uh, different uh, challenges and openings and uh, insights and... Um, completely feeling lost and completely feeling um, on track. You know, just a whole range of different experiences that we've been with together these, this week. And it's, it's, felt, it's felt very blessed and it's felt very fruitful. And it's felt a real privilege, actually, for us to be able to help hold this space. Um, Dara and Kitty and myself and... And in the background, all of the IMS um, community and staff, and um, it's just—it's a very impressive organisation. It's very sort of well oiled and runs in a very um, supportive way, and it's a very compassionate organisation. I'm very thoughtful and very impressed about how how IMS really considers a lot of things and how to do things well and. If there's difficulties, really takes that to heart and tries to figure out the best way to respond. And there's a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of compassion that, that we've benefited from. It's helped us hold this space here together. And it's not quite like our operation in South Africa, which is a bit like being in the Wild West, <laughs> where we sort of mostly just hang on by our fingertips. So it's quite a luxury to come here. It's like getting off a, a, a bamboo bicycle into an ocean liner. It's like <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we've been enjoying that. And thrown in, it's been some great food. So some um, really uh, wonderful meals and uh, wonderful um, thoughtfulness gone into the cooking. And, and uh, yeah, the whole experience is... Um, been very nourishing and yet you know in the midst of that this isn't easy work you know it's um, I think there's one in one of the suttas where it's said that the Buddha said it's easy easier to face an army than to face ourselves I, I'm not so sure about that but <laughs> but you know still it gives you the the sense um, of of the the work that we're doing, that it's that you know, it's it's not so easy to do this work, where we actually, as uh, as our uh, our friend and one of my te- our teacher Ajahn Sajito from our monastic days would say, coming eyeball to eyeball with our karma, you know, with the momentum of the mind being actually really uh, with that. And and um, learning to contemplate our experience rather than react so much or avoid or distract ourselves. 
So we can give ourselves a, a lot of credit for for staying with the process and for developing some skills. So we've really, at the end of the day, this is about a, a cultivating a practice. As you know, referring back to that um, uh, reflection that the Buddha gave of this uh, process of and the path activity in and of itself begins to quicken the awakening process. So we've been highlighting this path activity and the practices involved in applying the activity of the path. Uh, this week, looking at beginning um, with this, this core teaching of the foundations of mindfulness and the cultivation of what's called samatha, what we call samatha samadhi, which is translated, the samatha literally means the stilling or the calming of the mind. Samadhi means the gathering, gathering of these energies, these disparate energies of the, the mind, the mental phenomena, the bodily energy, which is often sometimes a little unconscious to us, um, that we, sort of, we just sort of drag the body behind the mind that's going forward <laughs> and we get tired, we just crash out and sort of throw some food and coffee down and hope it all keeps going until it, <laughs> until it plays up and we, <laughs> we have to pay more attention. I just think the body, at the end of the day, has the ace card, you know, when it pulls it out <laughs> and uh, <laughs> gives you a pain that you can't get away from, then you know who's really the boss around here. I, I remember once having, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I once had a, a tooth abscess, which is one of, the, one of the really excruciating kind of pain. And, and I remember in the middle of the night driving myself to the emergency room. This was in England. I wouldn't have done that in America. I would have been too frightened with, my, with the cost of it all. <laughs> but I, in England, it's a bit different. So anyway, I drove myself to the emergency room, and I basically said, well, could you shoot me? You know. <laughs> It's so painful, I can't, I can't stand it. No, I actually basically said, could you just knock me out and pull my tooth out? And they basically said, no, we can't do that. You just take some antibiotics and go home and carry on with it. So, um, you know, as this, this whole pain situation, I was just thinking, wow, this, this, you know, I started to remember Ajahn Chah's teaching, you know, and when you're really in, 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 in a fix with something when the body is really plays up or, you know, an intense situation, then you have two choices. Either you just kind of go crazy or you practice. Yeah, so imagine child just say no pain. Just keep knowing it and don't, don't react so much. So, you know, being, being with the body, gathering the energies of the body before we just have to pay attention to the body because it plays up or it um, demonstrates some dis-ease of some sort to be able to consciously gather the energy of the body and the heart, this heart, this jitta, which is patterned and conditioned and affected by the impressions of our life and conditioned and affected by very early memories and very very profound um, conditioning from our culture, from our ancestry, from genetic inheritance from our karma, from so many influences, this jitta, this heart of ours, you know, has these impressions and, tangle, and gets tangled and, and experiences suffering and 
experiences turmoil and and so to actually gather that energy of the heart the body the mind and to begin to steady these energies within awareness to gather them into awareness to suffuse awareness through these three streams of our energy and through the simple practice of moments of attentiveness moments of attentiveness to the breath to sensation, to the feet touching the ground in our walking meditation. So these very, very simple practices, learning again and again to say not now, not to serve for the sake of this gathering and focusing and steadying. So this is the skill that we've been really cultivating this week, and this is very transportable. At first, it does depend, and it's helpful to have this context of silence and, uh, you know, a group like this together that supports us, and we begin to feel some sense of samadhi. We feel samadhi is really the fruit of the practice of mindfulness. It's a sense of gatheredness and focus, and and, and, and in, in one of the fruits of that is feeling more here, being more here being more rooted in awareness, in presence, and therefore the diminishing of the agitation and the, the constant seeking of the mind, reactivity of the mind, and the, the lessening of feeling lost or dispersed. So feeling more rooted, or more rooted. So, you know, at first it's helpful to have this context, but this is also something we can continue. It doesn't, the the form will dissolve. By this time tomorrow we will all, like the, the, the flower of the retreat would have been blown in the wind and all the petals, each of us as a petal, will be blown in according to the karma of our lives in various places, wherever we are going various situations, so the form will change and dissolve, but the practice continues. Yeah, so, we, you know, and, and when you're practicing, that's where we meet. We meet in the practice. You know, it's the same practice. It's the same awareness. When, we, when we're really with awareness, presence, it's the same. It's where we, we meet. And so this, this, you know, continuing as we, as we move from this form, we're just at the cusp of the, tran- the transition from this ending into movement and the next thing, whatever that is. But we can stay within this practice, stay within the awareness, stay within the footsteps touching the ground with the, each breath, which the sensation in the bodies. And in a way, what we begin to, to notice is not so much that we're moving through from one retreat to the next thing, but this experience of the retreat is arising and dissolving within the awareness. And then the next experience arises and dissolves in the awareness. And we begin to get a sense for that which remains, for that which isn't going anywhere, for that which is always here. Yeah. So in our inquiry, in our investigation, you know, through this contemplation that we've been exploring through these few days together, 
This practice of mindfulness, as the, the Buddha said, mindfulness is the, is the path to the deathless. The mindful never die, whereas the heedless are as if dead already. So when, you know, so when we're mindful, when we're really present, we're connected and rooted in awareness. We're rooted in that which isn't moving, which is not subject to coming and going impermanence, which is also connected to this ongoing experience of being rooted in the, the depth of our life of life itself, of Dhamma. So it helps us to really arrive more fully in the fullness of our being, in the fullness of our contact with life. You know, this is life. We, what are we seeking on top of life? Or well, in Zen they say putting a head on top of a head. You know, we, we, you know, we're looking for something more than what's here. And yet, while we're looking for something more than what's here, what's here is already happening, (laughs) and we're missing it. Looking for something special all the time, something a bit different. And yet the Dhamma is always here and now. It's always unfolding itself to us. It's always available for us. The miracle, the mystery of life. Well, we're looking for something in the closet, where something else might be that's a bit more interesting. So learning in this, this practice, the practice of the ordinary, you know, learning to find the Dhamma in the ordinariness of our life, you know, the people we meet, the families we're in, the work that we're doing, the challenges that we have, that this is all the rich compost of our life, bringing the, you know, allowing the possibility for the flowering of awakening to grow. It's not somewhere else in someone else's life or some special place. So when we, you know, in Ajahn Chah's way of teaching, which was very, I think, one of the great gifts of this master (coughs) was that he really made the practice transportable, whatever situation, like he said, you know, when people would say to him, oh, I, I haven't got time to practice, and then he would say, well, have you got time to breathe? You know, if, you have, if you're still breathing, <laughs> and we're still here in body, then we can still be with our experience, we can still study in the moment with the breath, we can still investigate what's happening here. Where is there suffering, if there's suffering arising? And what are we creating? What are we creating on top of that to create even more suffering? And then how can we diminish that tendency to unconsciously always generate stress and suffering and reactivity through this, this investigation? What's really happening in the moment, you know, and locating, well, right here there's feeling, sensation. Is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? It just is as it is. And then what are we adding on top through the habits of the mind? So wherever dukkha arises, there's an opportunity rather than it being a difficulty that we then resist and we struggle with and then we blame someone else or we 
blame ourselves rather than seeing that this is something to to learn from. And I think this, this attitude is out of all of the teachings for me in my life and this contemplation of the four truths has been so um, so practical because I suffer a lot <laughs> or because there's, there's always something that's a little bit challenging going on. And, you know, it's, it's, there's some opportunity in that you know, to grow through the challenges and to, as the Buddha um, encouraged us, to be victorious over the challenges, not, not to, 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 to buckle under them and then collapse, but to learn to strengthen ourselves and with the help of friends and with the support of teachings and the support of, of, of many things that are available to us now in terms of the, the Dhamma. You know, we don't have to. There was a time in history where you'd have to sort of hike over the Himalayas to get some teachings. <laughs> you know, these great journeys that these early um, translators took, literally over mountains and oceans and deserts, to get a bit of the teaching and take it back to their country and spend decades translating it. I mean, we just have to Google it now. <laughs> You know, and there it is. So everything. You know. So we're spoiled, really. Uh, we don't know the value of it uh, because it's sort of on, handed on our plate and we don't know, we don't, it's hard for us to value sometimes this Dhamma. So, to, so it's here, it's here for us. So it's here, it's good it's here for us because we kind of need it more than ever in the times we're in. So this, uh, to really, um, you know, uh, there's, you know, and we can take, uh, we can, we can contemplate other beings that are more, you know, have walked this path further than us, and it gives us a sense of courage. You know, for example, someone like Aung San Suu Kyi, who's just emerged from about, I think, about 21 years in, under house arrest uh, in Burma. And in throughout that time, at any time, her life could have just been taken. You know, the, the, she lived with that. And also, she, in her, um, her sort of bodhisattva offering and dedication to her country and her holding of the light for that country, while it was in such, under such oppression for so long, she, she, uh, she sacrificed an enormous amount of her personal life. There was a very poignant part of her story that um, her husband, who was in England, uh, got cancer and he was dying and, and you know, she, she would, would have been allowed to go home to England, she, she was, well, I guess she had two homes in Burma and England, but she knew if she did that, she would never get back to Burma. They wouldn't let her in again. They'd be glad she would have gone because she was a thorn in the side of the, of the regime. And so what she did is she made a video, got someone to help her make a video, got dressed up, and in her, you know she's so beautiful, and 
put on her best clothes and then spoke to her husband about her love for him and uh, sent this overseas, but it got to him two days after he died. And, you know, he couldn't, didn't get to hear her message. So these, these very human things of the sacrifice that she undertook and the fear that she met, but she, I remember hearing her speak once when she said, well, the thing about fear is the only thing to fear about fear is fear. <coughs> and she used, uh, you know, she was a practitioner. So she used the practice to meet all of these the loss and the grief and the challenge and the fear and the hope. This is a, you know, to, to someone that's able to take this practice into a life situation, given it, given it's not hopefully going to be our experience, but so it's a more intense experience, but it does give us an example of what is possible. And then to maintain her her sanity through that and her coherency and her ability to when she was released miraculously was able to you know move and continue to move through uh, a society that had changed a lot and yet was able to meet you know people and respond in these sorts of situations, similar to you know, where we've been the last 19 or so years in South Africa, when we arrived there, we arrived, we were invited, Kitty, Sarah and I, someone asked if we were married actually, and I realized that um, one assumes that people know about you, but not necessarily, obviously, but we are married. And um, <laughs> we got married in 92, and we were both trained in the same monastic system. Kirisaro entered the monastery in um, the 1976, um, and I entered the 1976. I entered my monastic training in 79. Although I'd heard about Kirisaro actually in 75, it makes us sound ancient for the younger people here. <laughs> but um, when we were practicing at a center outside of Oxford, and um, that was in the days when the, the Ubar Kin school was just starting to um, move out from Burma and India into the West. And um, we were doing one of these really intensive retreats. And I remember hearing about, there was about 70 of us um, doing this retreat. And we were mostly all Europeans, but we all heard about this very enthusiastic American that had gone off to Thailand. I think that's the first time I heard about Kirisaro. And I remember thinking, oh, that's pretty keen. You know, for me, it was difficult just to get from where I was a student in Southampton to Oxford which is about uh, 70 miles. That seemed like a huge journey. But to go in those days to Thailand seemed, you know, really a huge thing. And within a few years, I found myself in Thailand. I wasn't expecting to find myself there um, on the track of Ajahn Chah. So anyway, we both trained in this monastic school, the forest school, and we're both very involved in in, in, uh, um, the beginnings of establishing a monastic lifestyle in Britain and the emergence of uh, four monasteries there. And during that time, we didn't expect that we would fall in love and decide to leave. But that's actually what happened to us. 
um, towards the end of our monastic life after he had been a monk for 15 years and I'd been a nun for 12 years. And you can imagine, well, maybe you can't, but it was... It was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a very controversial situation that we... <laughs> And um, because we, we announced to a very dear friend of ours who was an abbot uh, at the time, the abbot of the monastery that we were both training in, in West Sussex, that you know something was happening between us. We weren't sure, but we were going to talk about it. And um, could he not say anything until we talked about it? And, and he did. He, he, he mentioned it to our overall abbot. And all hell broke loose, and it just became, it sort of became a big scene. Anyway, it, it, it led to the situation where we disrobed, and for a while we weren't quite sure what to do. With, <laughs> because, you know, because we'd been in this very... Um, <laughs> that's all I'm saying for now about that story. <laughs> You can get the rest in the in the book one day whenever it comes out. But um, we, it led to this situation where we didn't really know what to do with ourselves for a while because you know we'd been in this very quite um, intense lifestyle, and in that lifestyle, you 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 know you don't have any money, you don't have any, um, you know, you don't, you basically just give everything up and do this lifestyle. And suddenly we found ourselves having to think about practical things, like making decisions about what to eat and what to wear and how to drive and how to open a bank. I mean, things that I hadn't even ever thought about. So, and then we started to get invitations to teach retreats. And then one day, 94, just after the, if you remember, those that can remember that far back, um, the, the, the South African political changes um, happened. Well, they happened before, but the, the most significant part of the political changes and the fall of the apartheid regime was really in 1994 with the first elections. And that's when we were invited, coincidentally, to go teach in South Africa at a Buddhist center that was there. Um, had been started by a Dutch guy in the 1980s. So we found ourselves um, arriving in South Africa at a point of a huge transition when the whole country was going through both a euphoria, this incredible euphoria of, uh, of toppling this, uh, what had actually been an extremely brutal regime and an extremely strange regime, <laughs> um, and, and fear. Because within, with the with the opening um, of the society and the way that it that that it happened, there was also um, an upsurge of a lot of violence. And the area that we where we went to, where the Buddhist center was, was right on the edge of a of um, an area where there was quite a, a strong, uh, almost like a war, a, a low-grade war going on, turf war between the Inkata Freedom Party of the Zulu and the ANC Party of Kosa. And then on top of that, there was a lot of just wanton violence happening. So it was like going from a monastery where as if you raised an eyebrow, it was a violent act, <laughs> to, a, to a country where people would sort of rock up at the retreat center and sort of sit there talking about the latest hijackings and murders and this and that and you know it was it was a bit of an extreme situation that we found ourselves in but one of the people that really inspired us very much is which is what I want 
point is to say, um, you know, like Ansan Suji was, of course, Mr. Mandela, and um, his whole um, consciousness that he gave to the country. And um, there's no doubt that without him and um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and particularly uh, some of the people that had been at the forefront of the struggle, that if the, the, the consciousness that they gave, that without that, that, the, that I think the country would have been definitely more lost and, and would have unraveled in very unfortunate ways. But Mr. Mandela came out of, and again, he was someone that was incarcerated. Um, and if you haven't read his story, you should read it, the long walk to freedom, because it's, it's a tremendous story and it also encapsulates a lot of the story of the struggle and you know himself taking the lead uh, from Gandhi, who also spent 21 years in South Africa uh, learning a few tips before he took on the British Empire and did them <laughs> in. Um, but he was also had come over as a lawyer and uh, Mr. Mandela had also, against all odds, trained as a lawyer and, um, and took on the regime. He was arrested and and, you know, he defends himself and is very against uh, an inhumane, immoral regime in a very brilliant way. Anyway, he was clearly um, someone that was an exceptional human being and worked with many challenges and um, landed up being um, incarcerated for 27 years. Um, many of those years on Robin Island off of the Cape Town. And um, during that time, um, I was actually just there. I just was, um, just before, literally just like a week before coming here, I was with a group um, that I was taking around South Africa, and we we were on Robin Island. And um, they were talking about, in, when you go to visit Robin Island, um, they usually have a former political prisoner that will show you around and they'll talk about their experience um, and what happened. And what was really powerful for um, the political prisoners that they had was that they used the whole experience as a university. And they very valued education and they valued really... I mean, it was like um, they were like in a... Um, crucible situation of intensity where they were literally forging a new country because they, I guess they realized that the whole regime was going to fall and they were beginning to consider, you know, themselves in that situation. And in the midst of that, from what I heard that actually Mr. Mandela learned to meditate, that there were also um, Indian prisoners that had come from Hindu backgrounds and had a tradition of meditation. And at one, one talk I heard him give, he talked about how he actually, in a certain way, missed those days and missed those times of reflection. I'm sure he didn't really miss those days because they were brutal in a way, but, but he had time, for space and time, like we've had on our retreat for reflection. And, and he... And, and he was commenting how valuable that, that, that is and that was to give him time to really get a perspective on something. And you can see in his manner is how, um, 
how he he has this very reflective mind. He really takes his time to consider things. And was also someone that was able to come out of some a situation that would have crushed the best of us and made us very, very bitter. But, you know, came out of that situation with this incredible capacity um, for holding a whole country in its trauma and for moving it forward beyond, uh, you know, the obvious default to to violence and uh, recrimination. And it led the country also into uh, one of the, a very evolved process through the truth and reconciliation process, which um, is also something you, you might be interested to explore and what happened. The country going through quite a soul-searching, which is in, it has been critiqued more in later times for various reasons, but it was still a very powerful and in a certain way evolved process. So these, these you know, examples are, you know, another one is His Holiness the Dalai Lama, living within, you know, uh, with uh, trying to forge some kind of way of responding to this absolutely crushing experience, uh, reality of his whole culture, his lands, his people uh, being decimated, their culture, and, and then uh, being uh, vilified by the Chinese government. And so, you know, so these, these, are, these are people, these are contemporary people that demonstrate the best of our human capacity in the midst of the world. You know, so that we can see that, you know, that uh, gives us an example. Very human, pe- human beings, you know, feel like we do, that suffer like we do, that, you know, um, get upset, I'm sure, devastated, and yet continue and have the courage to continue. And each of them have, have some kind of a practice, some kind of way of reflecting, some kind of profound inner ethic that keeps that help to keep them uh, connected with the best of the human side, rather than defaulting to something more demonic and desperate and <coughs> devastating. So in our in our um, you know our daily life, we have an opportunity. You know, this is where a different kind of practice begins. We have an opportunity for a whole lifetime to continue growing, to continue applying the practice, to continue being interested in its flowering, you know, planting the causes through this this activity of the path little by little, and allowing the flowering of those causes, because they will flower, it will flower, and the benefits will come. And they'll come when we know that we've been able to withstand something, or be with a situation, or move through something that would have perhaps before just taken us out, or overwhelmed us. And we realize that instead of the challenge crushing us, we've grown through it. 
and things that used to scare us don't scare us so much. Uh, you know. I mean, I can attest to that sitting here teaching the Dhamma. <laughs> this just used to be a very, very scary thing uh, for me. I remember my first um, workshop when I was uh, still a, a nun and I was asked to, to teach a workshop so they start you in a five-hour workshop in the afternoons to start you teaching a bit. And so as a group of people, and I was like this, sitting there, and I, I actually, for five hours, I couldn't open my mouth. I couldn't think of a word to say. And I sort of sat there, and at the end, I said, well, should we have some tea? <laughs> <laughs> and then quite a few years later, about ten years later, I was teaching a retreat, and someone was on that workshop, and they... They're in my check-in book, and they said, wow, we really thought you were some kind of Zen master. (laughs) I said, well, actually, I hate to disillusion you, but I was frozen in fear. I couldn't think of a word to say. (laughs) So I can attest to the reality that things that, you know, we feel we can't do, we just keep working at our edges, then one day we find that we can. It's not necessarily always easy, but we can do it. And we can grow from it and learn a lot. And you know, this is the opportunity that we have is to use the practice, not to, as Ajahn Chah would say, to stay in the trenches and hide from life. This isn't the time to hide. You know, this world is suffering. The Buddha talked about the world burning. One of the early talks that he gave, he talked about the world burning from the energy of greed, hatred, and delusion. And now we're getting to live in a time when the world is really literally burning. And so this is going to impact us all in many different ways. And so it's the time for us to have to use the practice, like these great heroes, these that have used their spiritual practice to demonstrate it in the world around us in small ways and sometimes even in bigger ways if the opportunity presents itself to, to shine the light, to support others, to act out of compassion and wisdom and with the challenges and defeats and the betrayals that life might present to us, to use them to grow through. I think our work in South Africa has been um, very challenging for us to be in a country, it's not our birth country. Um, We didn't have quite the wiring that you have when you're born in a certain country uh, to, to really negotiate it. So it was very raw for us to come into a um, KwaZulu Natal where there's, there had been this a lot of violence, had been, um, we, you know, the time that when we arrived, in a way, the apartheid era was still very resonant. And in some ways it still is. In the rural areas, things slow more, uh, change more slowly. Uh, we had a huge discrepancy between those that were entitled and had wealth and those that had been marginalized along race lines and devastated and invisible in a certain way. And then in the midst of that, 
um, not long after the euphoria of the liberation came the wave of AIDS. And one of the places it hit the most is in the rural areas. And so this was something that we have kind of, I guess, lived through and lived with in the last years of our work there. And so it was really an interesting dynamic for us because we'd been more trained in the monastery and our monastic training to focus on internal changes of consciousness. You know, that this was the work, and this is a very profound work and a very important work, but that didn't quite seem the right, the only approach when we were literally faced with a family that moved into the hermitage who were sort of refugeed and end up living with us for eight years, or when people would come and knock on the doorstep with some, you know, someone just died or someone was sick. or So then we realized we had to really engage the society um, that, we, that we found ourselves living with because it was very, you know, right on our doorstep. <laughs> and, and within that, all of the complexities of what that challenge brings, brings. Uh, reflecting on your own wealth or your own entitlement or your own securities when meeting people that that, uh, haven't had the same opportunities, the same supports. So that's, uh, I think in many ways we're still um, working with that and still digesting that. So, but one of the, one of the practices that's been very important in meeting one's own reactions and one's own process and what's going on, what's been going on for us in that context. In in some ways, well, I think what was really challenging is to say, well, how does this practice really apply in these situations? How do we maintain well-being and how do we offer service? How do we sometimes have appropriate boundaries and how do we learn to, to wisely support? the situation that we find ourselves in. And these, there isn't a rule book. It's like, no, go to page 10 and what do you do in this situation? Um, and then many times we would find ourselves, you know, without much guidance. So it would take a lot of, just to keep listening inwardly and keep reflecting, but this practice, like for example, what we were doing this afternoon, this, this practice of um, loving kindness, you know, and to, in the face of sometimes some very difficult circumstances we found ourselves in, or betrayals, or betrayals of trust, or, or, or conflicts, the country's been very traumatized like that, then it tends to express itself in a lot of uh, conflicted behavior, violent behavior, a, a, a wound to the, to the capacity for trust and cohesion. So, it's a, you know, so there's a lot of strangeness to, to work with. And, uh, and so, and that's you know, very impacting. So this, this, these, this quality of just, what is it to really hold kindness, really to hold love when in the face sometimes of the opposite, when one's activated in one's own aversion, you know, or one's own judgments, 
and you know, f- uh, to really um, explore how to to keep cleaning the heart, clearing the heart. We had uh, the the person that actually, in a certain way, we sh- we were never meant to be in South Africa. <laughs> The abbot that we had, the one, if you remember the story I was saying about when Kirisa and I were going to talk about together whether what was happening for us and whether we were going to leave the monastery, and we told our abbot, Ajahn Ananda, um, say, well, don't say anything just now. Um, and, and he did <laughs> to our abbot. And then, you know, he, he was somewhat, he was the person that was actually supposed to go to South Africa. He had been invited when he was a monk, when he was um, in 1984, and he'd gone there to this retreat center where we landed up working for many years, and he, he loved it. He loved the land, because, the, the, you know, it's a very powerful place. He, he really connected with the land and the power of the place and the African community and the work there, and, you know, he loved it. Um, and he was, you know, he had been, before he became a monk, he was an American, he'd been a Vietnam vet, he'd been in Vietnam, he'd been a Marine, and he was a very tough guy. And, um, you know, one day, one of the, th- one of the things that, that happened for him when he was uh, an abbot was that he had an altercation with another monk. And... He was, you know, saying later how when when he just didn't get on with this other monk, and something flared up between them, and he said to this monk, "Okay, let's meet out on the front lawn, (laughs) and we'll sort it out." And so he went out, and he and he said like all this marine energy, you know, that he'd been trained in, and and this sort of warrior type energy came came up, and and he was sort of facing off with this guy, and they were arguing, and he could feel like his, you know. It's not quite monk-like, but he could feel like his hand going to a fist and wanting to take this guy out. And then he just realized, what am I doing? I've taken these vows. And then, <laughs> and instead he brought his palms together and he bowed before this other guy. He just did this bow. It completely blew them both of them out of the water, you know, and they kind of calmed down and they sorted it out a bit. But he was, he, was a, he was a real warrior and he would have been great to go to South Africa. But what actually happened for Nando was about a year or so after we left, he fell in love with someone and then he left. <laughs> Although he left like a Marine, he didn't leave like... like I mean, we, we told everyone and became this big kind of big sort of soap opera for a while. But what he did is that he left he decided he wasn't going to go through the controversy of announcing that he was leaving to go off with a beloved. He wasn't going to go through the soap opera <laughs> that we went through. So he, he engineered his exit in a very marine-like way. He, he, um, he, he left at midnight. <laughs> and he left his robes in a very neat pile. <laughs> and he sort of um, had a rope with his rucksack on the end of it, his his backpack, and put it out the window, and then jumped out and walked away. And that was that. That was Ananda. That was his way of doing it. And um, and you know he was due to go. You know the, he, <laughs> that that was a bit controversial too, actually, as it turned out. But he had this warrior style, and he was the one that was supposed to be in South Africa. But actually, what happened for him is that. Um, 
about a, a, a year or so after he disrobed, he'd had he'd been wounded when he was in Vietnam. He had been had this been shot in the back of the head. He had this huge hole. When he used to shave his head, he'd have this you know, to do this special thing to try and shave this huge hole that he had. He had no skull there, um, and so he he was a monk for twenty years. He was a brilliant monk, but after he left, then this brain tumor started. And he, he couldn't go back, and then actually within two years, about two years or so, he, he died from this effect, from this wound that he had. And so it was us that, that landed up, instead of him, we got recommended instead of him, but we always felt like somehow Ananda was always with us, that he was, you know, some part of his spirit was there in this warrior thing. And I always remember this this bowing, this attitude, because this in the face of our challenges there, building up this hermitage and meeting the conditions that we found ourselves within. This one of the things that Ananda used to teach and really um, towards the end of his monastic career, monastic life, one of the things that he really promoted a lot was this loving kindness meditation. He did a lot of it and he tried to bring it into the monastery. We weren't, you know, for a while, the monastery wasn't that receptive um, because we were like hardcore, let's go to emptiness, Nibbana <laughs> practitioners. But he had a really important point, you know, that, that without this loving kindness, you know, it's very hard to withstand the pains and the challenges of the heart. And it's very easy to get embittered when we are, when we do experience um, the things that can happen within human relationships that, uh, that wound us. So this loving kindness and also to really explore compassion, this second Brahma-Vahara of, of how to, to hold ourselves and life with compassion, which means the willingness to, to not only meet suffering to overcome it, but to meet suffering to um, feel it. And I realized, you know, what, one of the ways that apartheid uh, worked is that it um, helped, it um, blinkered people from the suffering you know, because there was there was these incredible systematic racial divisions that happened and that were promoted and engineered, that people would actually literally not see the suffering. You know, become very blinkered in these kinds of situations. It's very easy, and we can look at something like South Africa and the history there, and it's kind of like really obvious because of a certain thing. You know the way that that society developed itself. But actually, that this happens in all societies, that we have ways where we blink at ourselves um, from the suffering around us and others, the earth situation. So in this, this cultivation of compassion is the willingness to actually be affected and to feel suffering and to find ways to skillfully respond to help alleviate suffering. This is one of the cultivations of the Buddhist path. It's not to just be passive. 
but to actually use the energy and the power that we have, particularly if we have we have more entitlement for whatever in whatever way, more resources, more power to consider wisely, not just foolishly, but consider wisely how can we help to lend that resort those resources or power for the welfare of the whole for others. And then con- and co- uh, complementing that, this, this third Brahma-vihara of also not only resonating and being sensitive to suffering, but also being able to, and this was something that was very powerful for us in our work in South Africa, to really also to keep noticing this third Brahma-vihara of mudita is about joy, or learning to really resonate with, with that which is beautiful and joyful and good, to keep seeing the goodness in ourselves, in life, because it's really easy to just get really depressed (laughs) by what goes down and what happens, and to lose touch with the beautiful. And for us, I think what has been very powerful is that we found a lot of nourishment and beauty in the natural world. South Africa is such a beautiful country. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Incredible landscapes, incredible power, these large areas where they're still protected, although there's a lot of difficulty in protecting, but there's still protected areas where these amazing uh, game parks, the huge areas given over to to um, the, the the these powerful animals of Africa. Lions and the rhinos and the elephants, and we would we've sometimes go into these parks and do walks in them and wilderness trails and really feel the power of nature. And something about that that's very simplifying and very, you know, very uh, connecting. And I think part of our neurosis that we have in our contemporary's world is that we've lost our connection with nature. We don't feel it as more powerful than us. And so we don't have that awe and that respect anymore. And it's so important for us to feel that. Um, and to feel, you know, to be able to um, resonate with that which is beautiful, joyful, wild, humorous, good. And then finally, this last quality of heart that has been really important for us in our lives, in our work, but also important for, for us as we continue to take this practice into daily life, which is the, the practice of equanimity, or learning to have more even-heartedness, not to be quite so thrown by the vicissitudes of life, you know, devastated when it goes wrong, and elated when it's going right, and then just getting kind of completely overwhelmed but having upeka, peksha, the Sanskrit word, literally means having a larger vision, being able to know this too will pass. Things change. So in this, uh, this helps to, in a way, give balance. It helps to give perspective, it helps us to withstand difficulty, and it helps us to have more dispassion, which is very important to balance 
the other qualities of, you know, of compassion or being, you know, when we're involved in the relational field, when we're, you know, as human beings, often we're so caught up with each other's stories, we're so caught up with the our reactions that we completely lose equanimity, completely lose our ability for this more even-mindedness, even-heartedness. So this this is a contemplation of just the recognition that at some profound level, everything is working out according to its own karma, its own lawfulness. You know, we might not understand that or approve of it, but it has its own unfolding. We can do what we can to make things as as just, as good, as beautiful, as healed. But you know, we can't control everything. <laughs> the world has its own unfolding. There's a, a wonderful. The, the, where, where we live, the people that lived there originally uh, were the Khoisan, the First Nation people. And one of their poets, the people that lived in this land for 30,000 years, is hunter-gatherers. And we still f- see, you know, they were decimated. Uh, very tragic history, but we can still see some of their very, very how lightly they touched the earth, and a little bit of their their presence through the art that they left in the caves around us, and sometimes you can feel the spirit of them in the wilderness around us. And one of their poets said, "This wind, this wind us thus when we die." Our own wind blows, for we, who are human beings, we possess wind, we make clouds when we die. Therefore, the wind does thus when we die, the wind makes dust, because it intends to blow, taking away our footprints, with which we have walked about while we were still, while we still had nothing the matter with us. And our footprints, which the wind intends to blow away, would otherwise still lie plainly visible. For the thing would seem as if we still lived. Therefore, the wind intends to blow, taking away our footprints. This touching lightly, being here, doing what we're doing, but all underneath our movement through life, this encouragement with this equanimity is to to touch lightly, to let go, to let be. And in that letting be, letting go, as Ajahn Chah used to say, as a practice, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, whatever it is, learning to let it be, put it down. As Ajahn Chah would say, to let go a little, we have a little peace. To let go a bit more, we have a bit more peace. But to completely let go, then we really know peace. And this peace we can know. We can know and we can taste. So as we continue 
to take our practice from this form to really uh, be encouraged because that's what Ajahn Chah would encourage us uh, to keep uh, to keep with the practice to keep applying these moments of the path activity and allowing that recognizing the flowering of that in moments of our ability to taste the peace of relinquishment the peace of the heart that knows its own nature. It's resting in its own awareness. So finishing our evening with a sharing of blessings, it's on page five. Teachers and grants of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces. Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all means receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, 
The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.